For 13 days in 1962, from October 16th to October 28th, the world was on the brink of nuclear war. Um, show of hands real quick, how many of you were actually alive in 1962? Yeah, very few. All right, in the first service there was only one. So we had... <laughs> so we're, we're skewed young, but uh, those who were... And I, it was three years previous to my birth, so I can say I was not alive at the time. And even if I had been, I would have been so young, I wouldn't have known what was going on. There was a severe crisis between the Soviet Union and the United States. The Soviet Union had tried to set up uh, a nuclear uh, launch station in Cuba, 90 miles south of Miami. And, and the United States, under the leadership of President John F. Kennedy, created a naval blockade. And for the first time, really, and really the last time by some historian's account, we were within a decision of a nuclear holocaust. It was the closest we've really ever come to global thermonuclear war. Um, all it took was one misstep by somebody, and disaster would have uh, befallen our world. And you can see that in the newspaper headlines. It was, uh, for those who were old enough to live it, uh, some families were... Uh, rushed to build bomb shelters in their yards. Some still exist, these little bomb shelters that were created because of fear of the nuclear fallout. Uh, the reality of the danger of the situation is what produced, ultimately at the end of those 13 days, joy. A joy for something that was avoided. A joy for a peace that now could exist. Fortunately, the country's leaders came to their senses and realized they didn't want to destroy each other in the world, and peace then reigned. But the joy of peace and really the celebration of peace is only possible when you recognize that, that there really is imminent and potential danger. Peace. This is a concept that even though I was born three years after the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, was part of my childhood because the 60s and 70s Vietnam War protests were going on and the peace symbol was something that I became acquainted with at a very early age. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, early on learned the peace sign. And, and then when I became a Christian, started getting into the whole religious symbolic dove with the olive branch in his mouth peace sign that is part and parcel of the Christian experience. These signs of peace that, ex that really were a part of my life, uh, while I understood conceptually what that was about, I could never get where and why people felt like this was, um, this was something that was so much a part of their lives, why it was so important. I mean, in, in the Catholic Mass, you have a section of the service where you extend the peace of Christ to each other. It's kind of like we call it time together, but it was more formal and brief. And uh, it was really the only part of church I actually liked. And, and so there was this moment, um, but I never understood why peace was important or where the concept came from. People would say, well, that, that seems odd. Um, this is a, a, a concept that our culture buys into in large part. Um, but if you think about it, uh, a lot of people believe that we uh, evolved from animals. And I would say the majority of people in our culture would embrace the idea that uh, we are really just a higher 
stat, a status of evolutionary process, that we are merely animals. And, and if you watch the Nature Channel, peace would not be the word that would describe the natural world. They rip each other to shreds and steal each other's food. And when old lions run out of gas, they kick them out of the pride and they wander off all by themselves. This is a horrible, awful way to live. Ironically, I think the Bible probably shares one thing in common with evolutionary thought, and that is that human nature is selfish. We are, by nature, wired in our sinfulness to put our own needs above everybody else's. In, in evolutionary theory, they call that the survival of the fittest. In, in our world, we put my needs ahead of yours. So if we live in a world where the thought is everybody's thoughts and beliefs are equivalent in value and scope, so we live in a culture that embraces plurality and, and, and really there's, it's a no-no to have any absolutes, even as a kid, I was like, why, why is peace something that we've all embraced? Where does that come from? If there is, in some people's minds, no God, why would they have this moral law they've created that peace somehow is a good thing? There's nothing in our world that would seem to indicate that that is the natural course of things. Many theologians believe that the desire, the innate desire for peace that resides in human beings is a remnant of being created in God's image. They call these the communicable attributes of God. So even in spite of the fall of human beings into sin and the chaos that is now reigning in our world, God has imprinted on all of us, hardwired His creation to long for peace. It is what existed before the fall of human beings. It is what currently exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and has existed for all eternity. So the essence of peace is that it reflects the glory of God. From Israel's history, we see King David as an archetype of Jesus. Before Jesus was incarnated in man, which we celebrate at this time of year every year, we had pictures of the soon coming Messiah and the Davidic messianic character is something that scholars and theologians have talked about for many, many moons. And this David, King David, was the archetype of Christ. He was really the man's man. He was the perfect man. He was prophet, priest, and king. He was a poet and warrior. He was the picture of a king who would save. And this is supposed to point us towards Christ. One of the things you see in David, oddly, a warrior that he was, was this innate sense that he wanted to make peace. And this is demonstrated in David's case as he sought peace with King Saul. King Saul, if you're not familiar with this, he was David's mentor. He was David's best friend's father. And he turned on David. He became jealous of David's success. He became uh, galled, as the scriptures say, by David's uh, winning of the crowds and the people's adoration of him. And so he effectively characterized David as an enemy and decided that David was somebody that had to go. He had to get God. And so now David's on the lamb, as they say, running from Saul, but was very careful not to speak an evil word of Saul was very careful not to raise his hand or encourage or incite anybody to 
to go after Israel's king. Instead, he sought refuge in God and believed that his enemy would become his friend, that peace was possible. And you see this in his writing of Psalm 34, which he wrote in captivity, really. He was hiding from Saul with the people of the Philistines. And verses 10 through 14 of Psalm 34 says the following, The young lions suffer wanted hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This is amazing. This guy's on the run for his life has been characterized as an enemy and really it wasn't any of his doing. And he's still compelled to seek peace. To seek peace with the king. The New Testament is equally as adamant when it talks about the Christian believer needing to be committed to relationship reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 13.11 says, Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And yet, when you think about the characteristics of most people's church experience, it wouldn't be one of great peace. Just finishing a book about the relationship, the historic relationship between the gay community and the evangelical church. And the writer says, if there is anything that has uh, not characterized that relationship, it would be the concept of peace. And, and the truth be told is, is that Christians have done a really terrible job of reconciling with each other. It's odd because... We've been reconciled and cared for by God in such amazing ways. And really, this is what is the heart of today's Advent message. How do we get peace? And assuming we actually do get peace, what do we do with it once it's in our possession? And so I have two really simple basic thoughts. And the first would be that God has provided our peace. And the second is that we're called to pursue it. And I'd like to unpack that today if I could. Let's begin in Luke 2, verses 8 through 11, our Christmas story, and see how he provided our peace. The scriptures read, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all of the people. One of the things I love about Christmas is the simplicity of the texts and how, they, uh, how obviously they address uh, the real heart of our lives. And you can see this, what's going on here in this passage. The angel comes to these shepherds who are out in the field at night. So this is dark, no unnatural light like we have here in Los Angeles, lighting up the night sky. Just dark. And threats abound. There's a, the simple threat of uh, predatorial animals coming to eat their sheep or whatever animals they were tending to at night. So they had to be alert. Then there was the threat of the thieves, the human predators that would come along and steal what was not theirs. And so these guys are strung as tight as a violin 
And all night long, they are on this edge of alertness because things could go very wrong very fast. And then suddenly, a supernatural being shows up. Now imagine that, if you will. I can relate to that. Life is already tense and a bit stressful. And then something unplanned happens and you lose your cool. That has happened to me a lot lately with our dogs. All right, I'm, I'm under a little bit of stress. I got something going on. And then one of my dogs will just go on my face. And then it's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get in trouble with the animal rights people here. You know, I'm going to do something to this dog. You know, and, and, or, they, or they would sh- shred a piece of furniture that I really love. You know, we have a puppy and this dog will drive. I mean, I'm already tense. And then I come home and he's chewed up something that's valuable to me. I can't tell you how many pairs of shoes we've lost to puppies just shredded and at 50 60 bucks a pop this is no small thing to a family on a budget and so you've got this tension already taking place and this is what's going on with these shepherds there's a state of anxiety and the lord has promised them i want i want you not to fear Modern psychology is preoccupied with finding ways for people to achieve peace. Uh, This is the end goal of most counseling, uh, most self-help, most group therapy. I would say it's even the end goal of most political activism is that we would somehow find peace. When troubled by world circumstances, we instinctively fight for our cause or repeat a mantra of self-help or work tirelessly to gain some sense of personal security. However, most either admit that their pursuit of peace has been futile, or that which they're basing their peace upon is so fragile, all it takes is a small jolt of life, a real life, and once again, instability will take over. I ask you, what what provides your peace today? Is it your personal finances? Is it a romantic relationship that you have and hope you get to hang on to? Is it the physical health you have or the physical health of your loved ones? These seem and are normal and often good things. But building our sense of peace on these things is like building a straw hut on the shores of Florida's Gulf Coast where we lived for 20 years. Everything's fine. Until the storm comes. And the storm always comes. There is no season in Florida where violent winds and hurricane force doesn't come and would absolutely destroy a straw hut. And yet we continuously act as if we could build our sense of peace on things that are that fragile. Life is full of storms. People get sick. We found out this past week, financial markets ebb and flow from bull to bear. Nations go to war. Political leaders in many countries, by virtue of their own insecurity and personal instability, recreate this in their citizenry. That's all I'll say about that. The good news, according to the shepherd, according to the angels, is that they come with a message that eliminates fear. 
the good news. This is the word gospel. Actually, it's interesting that good news, the word used for good news is the Greek word engelion. The root word is the word where we get evangelical or evangelist. It simply means someone who proclaims good news. Unfortunately, the word evangelical in America carries all sorts of loaded cultural meanings now. But in a real sense, this angel was one of the first evangelists to proclaim the good news. And the good news is that God has arrived to bring peace to people through the birth of His Son, our Savior. Our peace is made possible by the gospel of Jesus. We had real legitimate reasons to be afraid of God. We are finite. He is infinite. We are unholy. He is holy. We deserve just judgment for our sins, and He is a just judge. The natural posture of our soul is that we live in tension. And to get rid of this tension, a lot of people have suggested we change the rules and make it look like we're not so bad after all. Or we make God unjust. He doesn't really care about the doing of right or wrong. And He certainly wouldn't ever declare anybody deserving of some type of punishment. All of this takes place in an effort to relieve this fear and anxiety and replace it with peace. And yet, Jesus is saying you don't have to pretend. You don't have to ignore. You can say, I know I'm sinful, but God has come to restore me to Himself and bring peace in Christ. And it's not really until you come to terms with how much you really do deserve to be judged that when somebody says, I'm, not, I'm going to forgive you of that, that you become appreciative and full of joy. Much like when the United States and the Soviet Union, and particularly in the U.S. because we have a free press, our people were well aware of what was going on in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And joy rung, rung out all over the country when this crisis was avoided. A, a palpable sense of relief. Ah, peace. That was close. That only comes when you realize just how close to danger you really were. There were people in 1962 who were not anxious at all about what was about to happen. You know who they were? Clueless people. They didn't read the newspaper. They didn't watch TV. They had no idea what was going on. They're like, I don't understand why everybody's so anxious. Well, because there's something going on that's actually going to affect your world. It's going to mess it up pretty good. And in reality, for us, spiritually speaking, you can pretend that your heart doesn't deserve the just displeasure of God, but you'd just be pretending. And Jesus has brought great news. He's saying, your greatest fear, judgment, I'm going to eliminate that. I'm going to make peace. He didn't make it unknown that this was His mission. He was named Yeshua. As we studied last week, it means Yahweh saves. It says in Matthew 1, Jesus came to save us from our sins. And Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 19-22, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Speaking of Jesus, the human being, who we celebrate at this time of the year as having been God in the flesh, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace 
by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is what Jesus is saying. He is going to provide the peace. He's going to provide the means for you not to be afraid any longer of a just judge saying, you're guilty. You get to say, you're right, and then receive forgiveness. A holy God has made a pathway. Not because we convinced ourselves that we weren't that bad, or because we have some great new track record of obedience to His command, but He made peace with us by sending His Son in the flesh to take the penalty that was due us. The peace He provides was only going to come through His entrance into humanity. He's provided our peace. So what do we do with that now? People have rightly pointed out that you know, you've got a bunch of people who call themselves Christians who say they've experienced peace, and some of them are the least peaceful people in the world. What do you do with that? And this is where as a church we have to humbly say, Lord, teach us. Teach us. We don't want to be the reason some people don't believe. We, we want to please God. What is it? I see it in our text, really in the activity of the angels in particular. And also testified through Old Testament to New Testament that while He has provided our peace, we are called to pursue His peace. Let's unpack what that means. Verses 12 through 14. And this will be a sign for you, the angel is saying. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. The activity of angels is fascinating to me in this text. They're the messengers of God. It seems from Scripture that the angels' role in God's kingdom is really twofold. One is to announce good news, and then the second is to sing praises to God. And that's what these folks do. Uh, The essence of an angel's life is to live in a continuous state of peace with God and then proclaim peace with God. And the raw truth is, is that they're qualified to do this because they live in this place of personal peace. Uh, this is what eternal life was supposed to be. Before the fall of man, that's all that was ever known was peace. And these angels, unaffected by a broken world, they live in this state of peace. And so they are in a place of being able to proclaim it with such clarity. But for us, if we're going to be messengers of personal peace, we've we've got to actually have experienced it. People in general are not big believers in proclamations that say, do as I say, not as I do. The message of the angels is clear. Peace comes to those with whom the Lord is well pleased. D.A. Carson says, peace expresses the nature of salvation as the restoration of good relations between God and sinful people and the consequent reception of His blessings. God has made peace with us. And this is where the Christmas message of peace calls us to action. 
Like the angels, we are commanded by God to be proclaimers and pursuers of peace. So the question would be why? We're back to why does the world long so much for peace? Is it just our personal safety? Or is there something more profound? What we see in Scripture is that God's message of good news is His desire to make peace with people through His grace. People who don't deserve to be restored to God are sought out by Him and forgiven. And then we're commanded to do this very thing. And the reason is because in doing that, in pursuing people who we are unreconciled with, this is a full-blown, technicolor, in-real-time incarnation of Jesus in and through us. This is an opportunity that the world has to see Jesus in action today. And that is you pursuing them. When we don't pursue peace, when we are at odds with somebody and we don't pursue relationship reconciliation with them, we become the antithesis of God who is constantly pursuing peace with people who've wronged him. He wants to be seen. Rest assured, our enemy, the devil, is the one who doesn't want us to be the ones who pursue peace. He comes, according to John 10, to kill and destroy, and this was what he would have us be. He would have us to be effectively hawks. We just want to kill. We want to win by attrition. That's what we do. The pursuit of peace, why would we do that? The goal here is to win, to be great. Jesus says the goal is to be the servant of all. Peace. People won't potentially respond to your offer of peace, but yet we're still called to be the pursuer of peace because it glorifies God. Because of what happens when people encounter a peacemaker. They do what the angels did. They do what the shepherds did. People praise and give glory to God. They see the majestic character of God in our pursuit. This was certainly most clearly understood in the cultural reconciliation that was taking place in the first century between the Jews and the Gentiles. The gospel was obviously birthed in the Jewish nation. Jesus himself was Jewish the law, the prophets, the proclamation of the soon coming Messiah, the restoration of the world, including the Gentiles, all came through God's chosen people, the Israelites. But it was always God's intention to save the whole world, and yet the remnants of sinful prejudice followed the gospel into the first century. And so churches all throughout Asia Minor and the Greek world ended up at many points, having great tension between Jews and Gentiles. They historically had a lot of animosity. Now they were being called to a unity. That was made possible through their understanding of the Gospel. It was made possible through their understanding that neither of them deserved God's grace. And that's always the starting point for reconciliation. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, Chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And this group was a bunch, for the most part, a bunch of Gentiles. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, 
so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. He's saying the hostility that took place between Jews and Gentiles now has been eliminated because God has eliminated the hostility between himself and those groups. God offers peace to people who humbly come to him and accept his terms. The requirement? Humility. God opposes the proud, it says, everywhere from Proverbs to the book of James. But he gives grace to the humble. Peace comes when we realize that we are, as the great Puritan Jonathan Edwards said in reference to Romans 5.8, we are naturally God's adversaries. This was true for both Jew and Gentile. It's their shared brokenness that's the meeting place of personal reconciliation. Neither deserving God's favor, they were able to eliminate a hostility that existed between them culturally. And from a relational standpoint, whether it's our marriage or our kids, or whether it's our friends or family members, or whether it's coworkers or neighbors, we're called to the same thing, to pursue peace. Which means we come to the table offering our brokenness. It is possible that we'd be the pursuers of peace and those whom we desire to be reconciled with are unable to meet us at this table of reconciliation and serve up the bread of mutual brokenness. I have a relationship with someone who does not care for me. I would pursue reconciliation with them, but they have made it clear that reconciliation is only possible if I agree with their understanding of how everything went down and I repent according to what they think I should do. They're right, I'm wrong. Not a lot of room for sharing the bread of mutual brokenness there. See, you have to come to a table of reconciliation with humility saying, I know I probably did something wrong. I probably harmed you at some point in this. Show me how. And if the other person comes and says, no, I'm not going to admit any wrong on my part. You're just wrong. Admit you're wrong. And then we can be friends. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, at my expense, I come to you and I say, I'm willing to humble myself so that we can be reconciled. That's what Jesus did. He humbled himself and became a man. He created peace for us. It requires a humble response. We can sacrifice where we're able, but in certain relationships, if it requires us to be dishonest to ourselves or others, or put others for whom we're responsible in harm's way, sometimes these outlying experiences would prevent us from experiencing relational peace. Some of us may be victims of abusers, and I would say in that case, certainly, the only healthy possibility of peace would, that, would be that person admitting they're wrong and committing to whatever the necessary preconditions were to re-engage with them. But nonetheless, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12:8, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Why? Because they see the glory of God. They see the the peace of God in your pursuit of them. When I was seven, 1972, I wanted a POW bracelet. This was something that the hippies were wearing. Uh, they, they would get the name of a person who was caught um, in the Vietnam War, uh, prisoner of war, or missing in action. 
they would get their serial number and their name engraved on this metal bracelet and they would commit to wearing it until this person came home or was brought home. And my parents thought I was too young. And maybe they thought it was a smidge morbid for me to be, as a seven-year-old, wearing a POW bracelet. I don't know. All I know is that in 2011, I read this article that I'm about to cite, and I got mad at my parents all over again and had to go through this process of reconciliation. (laughs) You see, in 1972, a 12-year-old girl, Kathy Strong of Walnut Creek, California, got a POW bracelet in her Christmas stocking. She committed to wearing the bracelet, bearing the name of James Moreland, a Green Beret who'd been stationed in Lang Vai until he came home. Fifty, ye- I'm sorry, 40 years later, she, I'm sorry, that 38 years later, when she turned 50, she got word that his remains had been found and identified. She wore that bracelet till 2011. She got to know the family. And at his funeral, which was in full military regalia, they were so touched by her commitment that they allowed her to take off that POW bracelet and include it in the remains. I thought to myself, I don't know that I've ever been committed to anything in this world to that degree, it seems. That's real commitment. But it dawned on me that being in Christian community, I mean, if you're really going to take the gospel seriously, it involves that kind of stick to Because if we can be honest, church is hard because people are as broken as you are. If you're going to get to know people, there's probably going to come a time when somebody's going to rub you the wrong way. More importantly, there's going to come a time when you rub somebody the wrong way. And you're going to need to know that you're loved unconditionally. You're going to need to know that somebody will pursue you and reconcile with you even though you don't deserve it. They need to know that too. But for this to actually work, people are going to have to first experience real peace with Jesus. It can't be theoretical. It can't be theological. It's got to be have, we've got to have a really strong sense that Jesus has created peace for me. He's given me peace. He has provided peace with God. And out of that comes a desire to extend that to the world around us. Brotherly peace was on the mind of the Apostle Peter when he concluded his first letter with these words. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And quoting from Psalm 34, Peter says, Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Let us pray.